0: Be considering Genesis chapter 32. These are the words of God. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you with 400 men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two companies. And he said, If Esau comes to the one company and tax it, then the other company which is left will escape. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you have said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he lodged there that same night, and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau his brother two hundred female goats and twenty male goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, thirty milk camels with their colts, forty cows and ten bulls, twenty female donkeys and ten foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass over before me, and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where, do you, where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. So he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterwards I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. And he arose that night and took his two wives his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok then he took them and sent them over the brook and sent them over and sent them over what he had then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the break of day now when he saw that he did not prevail against him he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jab- Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, "'Let me go for the day breaks.' But he said, "'I will not let you go unless you bless me.' So he said to him, "'What is your name?' And he said, "'Jacob.' And he said, "'Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed.' Then Jacob asked, saying, "'Tell me your name, I pray.' And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, and the muscle that shrank. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open the glory of all these events which occurred so many years ago. That You worked with your servant Jacob, but you wrote these things for us who live for you now. And we pray, Lord, open our eyes and strengthen us, fill us with your glory that we might live with strength and honor to your name. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, last time we were in Genesis, we saw how God delivered Jacob and his household from Laban. Because Laban had chased him down, intending to do him harm and to take Rachel and Leah and the children back to Haran. But due to God's intervention warning Laban in a dream, Laban did not carry out the evil that he had intended. And he ended up doing the opposite, making a covenant with Jacob, and then he departed back to Haran in the north. So our text this week opens with Jacob going on his way from the hill country of Gilead, heading south toward Canaan. Jacob gets down near the river Jabbok. Now today it's called the Zarka River, but it's one of the main tributaries of the Jordan. And you can see on the the map on your outline, that some of the ancient travel routes coming down from the north would actually cross the Jabbok twice, once north to south and then the second time east to west due to a southward bend in the river. In any event, Jacob is approaching the Jabbok River from the north, which means he's getting close to Esau's land of Edom, which is in the region of Seir. Jacob knows he is approaching potential danger. But as he nears the Jabbok River, the angels of God meet him, in verse 1. Now this is a sign from God that he is with Jacob, just as he gave Jacob a similar sign 20 years before when Jacob was on his way north toward Haran. There he saw the angels of God at Bethel. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 28. And the angels on that occasion were ascending and descending on what appeared to be a ladder or a staircase between heaven and earth with the Lord standing up above it. And on that occasion, the Lord promised to bless Jacob with the blessings of Abraham and Isaac and to be with Jacob wherever he went. So on that occasion, Jacob called that place Bethel, which means house of God. And he also said that it was the gate of heaven. Here, Jacob says the place is God's camp. And he names it Mahanaim, which actually means dual camp or two camps. Because it appears to be it is both God's camp and it is Jacob's camp. The camp of heaven, the camp of earth. And what it is all indicating is God is with Jacob. So both in Genesis 28 at Bethel and now at Mahanaim, if we were to just look with the naked eye, we see Jacob facing all kinds of challenges, and he would appear to be all alone, but that isn't the truth, and God opens Jacob's eyes to see the truth, and so he sees the angels. The truth is God Almighty and his angels are with Jacob, And interestingly, the first thing Jacob does after this incident is that he sends messengers, literally angels, to Esau so that he doesn't surprise him or seem to be acting provocatively as he approaches the land where Esau lives. He sends messengers to address Esau as my Lord Esau and to update him on Jacob's situation. He has dwelt with Laban ever since he left Beersheba 20 years before. God has blessed him and prospered him. He's not here to challenge Esau, but rather to seek his favor and his blessing. Verses 4 and 5. But the messengers, the angels, return with ominous news. Esau is coming out to meet Jacob, and he has 400 men with him. Verse 6. Now that in that day that was basically the size of a chieftain's army. And Jacob could only interpret Esau's actions as he is coming for war. And Jacob is in no position to effectively fight. He has all the women and children as well as the flocks with him which is not how you fight. You take the army away from all of that in order to engage in military Um, maneuvers. But here, Jacob and the men, if if everything goes according to the normal way it did in that day, Jacob and the men are all going to be slaughtered. The women and the children and the flocks are all going to be taken captive and taken off. So the only thing Jacob can do here, strategically speaking, is to try to minimize the chance of total defeat by dividing into two companies, literally two camps. Because Esau with the Lord with the angels two camps. And so now Jacob is dividing into two camps. That way Esau has to pick one and hopefully the other can escape. And having taken what strategic action he can, Jacob turns to God in prayer. First he addresses the one true God, the God of his fathers. And in doing this he is alluding to God's promises God's faithfulness and God's command for Jacob to leave Haran and to return to Canaan. Verse 9, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. And it's interesting, this last phrase here, I will deal well with you. In other words, I will bless you. That is Jacob rephrasing, paraphrasing God's literal language, which God stated in chapter 31, verse 3. What God literally said is, I will be with you. Return to Canaan, return to your father Isaac, I will be with you. So Jacob rephrases that to, I will deal well with you. Because those two things are two sides of the same coin. Because you see, for God to be with us, is the central blessing from which all other blessings flow. You only need one thing in life for God to be with you. If you have that, you have everything. And that's what Jacob understood. For God to promise to be with him is for God to promise to take care of him, for God to promise to bless him. Next, Jacob confesses his unworthiness, verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. Now these two words here, mercies and truth, are very significant Hebrew words, particularly the way they're used in the Old Testament. The word for mercies here is the Hebrew word hesed. And what it basically, it's referring to God's covenant love. But when we hear the word covenant, the word covenant sounds kind of stuffy, doesn't sound very personal but the prime example of a covenant in the old testament is a marriage union that's a covenant that's highly personal highly relation relational based on a love bond for life and so god has said his mercies that is his covenant of that is to say it is his never changing never failing promise making Promise-keeping love, that's what it is. And then when it says truth, here truth is being used not in the sense of statements that are true, but someone who is true blue. In other words, someone who is always there, you can always rely on, they're always faithful, they're always reliable. That's what it's talking about, God's never-failing love and faithfulness. He said that he is not worthy of the least of all of these things that God has shown him. And then he, he paints a picture for us. He said, I crossed over this Jordan with my staff. When he had to flee Esau and go to Haran pursuant to Isaac's command that he seek a wife there, he had one thing with him. He had his staff. That was it. Now he's coming back with two companies. In spite of all the trials and hardships that he's gone through, God has been with him and God has blessed him all the way. Then Jacob makes his petition for deliverance. Verse 11. Listen how succinct this is. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau. And he's very transparent with God. I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. Finally, he reminds God of his promises once again in verse 12. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which could not be numbered for multitude. The point here being that if God is going to keep that promise, it would be inconsistent with multiplying Jacob if God is going to let Esau wipe him out. Those two things don't go together. And so... Jacob is appealing to God based on his promises. Now, in all these elements, and, and, and especially in the brevity, how short this prayer is, we see Jacob's growing knowledge of God, who God is, what his ways are, and his growing faith in God. Because this is exactly the kind of prayer that the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray In the New Testament, Matthew 6, 7 through 13, Jesus said, When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. You see, the heart of pagan worship, which is the idols, but as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, these idols uh, have demonic powers who are lurking behind them. And the heart of uh, pagan worship is bribing, cajoling, pestering, and manipulating demonic powers to do something you want. And the number one request is, don't hurt me and my loved ones, because they're malicious. They're not like the living God. And so Jesus gives the parable elsewhere in the Gospels of the unrighteous judge, And the widow who needed judgment and righteousness uh, to be done on her behalf. But she can't get the judge to pay attention because he doesn't care because he's not righteous. He's not a good judge. But she just keeps pestering him until he finally says, this widow is going to pester me to death and he finally does what he should do. The point... Christians miss the point of this parable all the time. We think, okay, therefore, we're supposed to pester God all the time so that we can get him, like this judge, to finally pay attention to us. The point of that parable is God is not like that judge. God is not like that. Therefore, you don't have to act like this widow to get God's attention. And that's Jesus' point here. He says... Your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him, which would seem to be a disincentive to pray. If God already knows what we need before we ask him, indeed, he knows knows far better than we do what we need. He knows perfectly what we need. So we don't need to pray, right? Wrong. We need to pray because God, who is the king of all, is also your father. And your father wants to hear it from you. Because you are his son, you are his daughter. Like any good father or mother, they, all, they know all kinds of things about their children or their grandchildren, but they want to hear it from them. Because it's about that love bond and that relationship and it's about the children, the sons and the daughters growing up into all that they're supposed to be. The king of the universe is your father and he wants to hear it from you because you are his child. In this manner, therefore, pray, said Jesus. And then he gives us a model prayer that begins with our Father who art in heaven and he gives us a model prayer that is less than 70 words long you don't need to pester you don't need to manipulate you don't need to control because the one who wants to hear it from you is also the one who knows who loves you and is going to care for you You see, God loves it when we tell him our needs, bound up all together, couched in the midst of his great promises and purposes in history. So Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's a big purpose. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can't get any bigger, more glorious than that. And then it immediately shifts to give me this day my daily bread. Those those things don't go together to us. They do to God. Because he has bound up his glory, his purposes with us as his children and the things that we need. God loves it when we remind him of his promises, of his word and his ways of His character and His faithfulness in the past, and what would be for His glory in the future. When we do so, when we pray that way, God knows we're thinking His thoughts after Him, which means we are becoming more and more like Him, which is the whole point of us being made in His image as His sons and daughters. We see examples of this in Scripture. Think of Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, advocating for God to spare the righteous in Sodom. Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you to slay the righteous with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It seems like Abraham is teaching God there. The truth is, Abraham's not teaching God anything. God is teaching Abraham a lot by acting like he needs to be schooled by Abraham. Think of a good godly father or mother who can take a child and act like the father or mother is ignorant about something. Hey, come here. Look at this. Look at this situation here. What do you think I should do here? I I was thinking maybe I should do this thing over here. Well, no, Dad, you can't do that because in Proverbs it says thus and so. It's like the father and mother already knows all this. This is about the child learning, not the father or the mother, but to hear the child produce from themselves God's word back to you And apply it to you in wisdom, that's music to any godly parent's ears. And that's what God is doing with Abraham in that instance. God loves to be schooled by his children according to his own word and ways and wisdom. Think of Moses in Exodus chapter 32 advocating with God after the people have immediately turned away from God and worshipped the golden calf. God acts like he's in a rage. Let me alone that I may consume them, and I will make of you, Moses, I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord. Why should the Egyptians, Lord, think about it, think about this, Why should the Egyptians say the Lord brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? That's what the Egyptians are going to say. You know it. You can't let the Egyptians say that. Turn from your fierce wrath. Relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. This conversation continues into chapter 33. God says, basically, okay... Depart, go up from here, you and the people, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will drive out the Canaanites before you. But I am not going to go up in your midst, lest I consume you along the way. And then Moses says to him, If your presence does not go up with us, if you do not go up in your midst, then don't bring us up from here. For how will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? See, he gets it. If you're not with us, you just cut the heart out of the gospel. You just cut the heart out of salvation. You just cut the heart out of the kingdom of God and this renewed creation that you were making. You see, again... God is not growing at all in that situation. Moses is growing a ton. God loves to be schooled by his children in keeping with his word, his ways, and his wisdom. And you find another example with Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 where he prays to God, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake for your people are called by your name in other words you've taken your name you've taken your presence you've placed it upon your people this is part of the meaning a big really the center of the meaning of you shall not take the lord's name in vain literally it is you shall not bear the lord's name in vain in other words the idea is we carry God's name upon us we carry it wherever we go and you shall not carry the Lord's name like it is something light and inconsequential that does not matter because the Hebrew word for glory literally means heavy consequential and the name of the Lord is heavy Not in a harmful way, but it is glorious. It is consequential. And that is the way we are to carry and bury the name of the Lord. And that's what Daniel is saying. You have placed your name upon your people. You have promised to save these sinners who left them to themselves will always turn away from you. And now, being righteous, you have to keep your promises. You have to keep your promises. God loves it when his children pray to him this way. When we remind him of his promises, when we point out what is for his glory according to his own word, when we point out how he has bound up his name and his glory with the salvation of sinners like us. This is how Jacob is praying to God in this brief prayer And by doing so, Jacob is showing the evidence that he is growing up as a son of God. Now, after praying, Jacob makes one final strategic move. He sends presents in waves to Esau. sheep, goats, camels, cattle, donkeys, 550 animals in all. That's a princely gift in that day. This is like a gift that you would give to a great king. They're all to be presented to Esau in wave after wave so that the lavishness of the gift is impressed upon him, and all before he comes face to face with Jacob in hopes that Esau's heart will be softened. Finally, Jacob sends his family over the river, leaving Jacob all alone on the other side for the night, verses 22 to 24. And then, And what must have seemed to Jacob like the perfect ending of his life, which has been one person after another fighting against him, starting in the womb, a total stranger shows up in the camp and begins wrestling and struggling with Jacob. All night long they wrestle till the day is starting to break. And Jacob realizes that the stranger is not a man at all, but God appearing as a man, because with a mere touch, this stranger puts Jacob's hip out of joint. But Jacob fights on, saying that he will not let the stranger go unless he blesses him, another indication that Jacob now realizes this is God. Then the stranger changes Jacob's name, another indicator that this is God. God. He changes Jacob's name to Israel, which will become the name of God's Old Testament people. His name goes from Jacob, one who grabs the heel, to Israel, which means God strives or God wrestles. And he explains that Jacob has wrestled with God and men and has prevailed. Verse 28. And finally, the stranger blesses Jacob in verse 29. Now what God is saying through all of this wrestling and everything else that happens during the night with Jacob, what he's saying to Jacob is, I am the one who has been wrestling with you your whole life. And what he's saying to us is that God wrestles with each one of his children In this manner, even as he did with his perfect son, Jesus. This is something that is a theme in the book of Hebrews. How, even the perfect, sinless, flawless Son of God, in order to become all he was supposed to be as the Son of God, to be qualified to be our Savior, to stand up to his full height at the perfect image of the Father, he had to contend with evil and with death and with opposition and with hardship and with affliction. If that is true with the sinless Son of God, how much more is it true with us? God wrestles with us the same way that a father will get down on the floor and wrestle with his toddlers and for the same reasons. Because he loves them, he build a relationship and to strengthen his children, teaching them to never give up. So a father wrestling with his toddlers will at different points pretend like each child is much stronger than they are, and that each child is getting the better of him at various points. Then the father will prevail and push each child further and further, teaching them to try harder and to never give up. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, tells us to always remember this as we encounter trials and hardships and opposition in this life. Our temptation is to view trials as random and pointless, just like Jacob must have viewed this stranger showing up in his camp out of nowhere and wrestling with him With everything else that's going on, Jacob must have thought, oh, wonderful, perfect. Why did I not expect this? Of course, a stranger in the middle of the desert showing up just to wrestle with me, of course. But in truth, the Bible teaches us that trials are never random. There are no random elements in our life, and there is nothing pointless in our life. All of the trials and hardships we face in opposition, even if it's intended by somebody else as evil, it is tailor made by our Father for our good. Now, trials are never fun. In fact, Hebrews 12 11 says that all trials seem painful at the time. If it's fun, it's not a trial. <laughs> but, This is the point. It says, when we are fully trained through this process of learning to trust God and walk with Him through these trials, the outcome is the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. What we learn over time is that when a trial comes our way, a hardship, and there's always present a temptation to sin in some way, even if it's just to kind of proceed in dull unbelief. But God's purpose in sending a trial our way is never for us to fail. He has the same purpose as a great teacher would have. A great teacher gives the students the test not so they will fail, but so that they will succeed and have the opportunity for that success and for glory. But we have to learn as we go along the way, when something hits us like this, you have to know where you are. You have to know the biblical story so you go, okay, I know what this is. I know where I am in the story. This is a trial. This is sent to me by God. My job here is to walk by faith with God through this. And so you immediately pray in that regard. You immediately seek God's help. You gain that maturity, and that's the way you go through trials. So coming back to chapter 32, Jacob calls the place of his wrestling with God, Peniel. You'll also see the word "penuel." It's just slightly different spellings of the same word in Hebrew which means face of God. He calls this place face of God. And Jacob explains, I have seen God face to face. In my wrestlings, I have seen God face to face. And my life is preserved, verse 30. And finally, as Jacob crosses the river, limping forward on his hip, the sun rises upon him in verse 31. And this is not a coincidence. Again, no random elements in our lives. This is signifying the face of God smiling upon Jacob. The sun coming up upon him as he limps forward, this is God saying, well done, son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's what God is saying. So as we conclude this morning, I want to come back to this idea of Jacob wrestling with God and Jacob clinging to God and saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, clinging is kind of a mixed word for us because if we say somebody is clingy, that's not a good thing. It means very insecure, weak, needy, and they're just kind of a very clingy that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about like a wrestling hold, like a lock hole. That Jacob has got this lock hold on God. He certainly can't beat God. God touches his hip, goes out of joint. There's no contest here. But Jacob is clinging in that sense. He's got a clamp on God and is just saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. God loves to hear this from his children. This is the attitude God wants from each one of us. No matter what we go through, no matter how many times we stumble, no matter how many times we fail, we come back, we confess our sins and you keep holding on to God and you keep saying, I will not let you go by your grace and you must bless me. And we see that this is central to mature faith in the Bible, this idea of clinging, clamping on to God, and never letting go. In Deuteronomy 30, and I think in your outline it says Deuteronomy 20, it should be Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 and 20. Here Moses is summing up what God has told him to say throughout the book, and he's really just getting down to the point here. The one point, if you had to boil it all down, here it is, verse 19. I call heaven and earth as witnesses to gay against you that I have set before you life and death. I have set before you life and death. Blessing and cursing. And the application is very simple. Choose life. That both you and your descendants may live. What does it mean to live? What does it mean to have real life? Verse 20. Number one, that you may love the Lord your God. That's number one. Number two, that you may obey his voice. And number three, that you may cling to him. Why do you cling to him? Because he is your life. What did Jesus say in John chapter 17? This is eternal life. He's praying to the Father. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You cling to God because he is life and there is no other life. There is no life apart from God who is life. And so you cling to him and never let him go. He is your life. And he is the length of your days. He is your life. He is eternal life. He's the length of your days here on the earth. That you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. In other words, all the other blessings that God promises, all the blessings that apply to here, long life, wisdom, prosperity. Uh, the kingdom of God coming more and more, God's will being done on earth more and more as it is in heaven. All of these other things and blessings are all downstream from the fact that God himself is your life. And it is him that you need. And so you cling to him and you never let him go. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.